something that has been legitimately like game changing for our negotiations is the vocal cries for support on social media that we've gotten from, you know, animation workers, but also like animation allies, fans of animation, people who like our stuff. You know, a couple of ways that you can support animation workers in our current fight is by, you know, just tweeting about our fight a ton. Krypton to Alderaan. I'm Joey, and this episode I'm joined by Animation Guild member, animation writer, and comedian Joey Clift. Joey, welcome and thank you so much for being here. Really, really appreciate it. Yeah, how's it going, Joey? Thanks so much for having me. Before we get into it, I have a question for you. It's not sure. often that I meet other Joeys, so <laughs> yeah. are, are you a Joseph? Why are you still a Joey? What's the, uh, tell me your Joey origin story. Do you mean why am I still a Joey after like entire grade school bullying of what are you a baby kangaroo? Like, why oh, would yeah, I yeah. keep I know that life. I know that life. That's, that's why I'm like, I'm just like, oh, yeah, I feel like we've walked the same streets. So I'm like being like, oh, what, was, <laughs> yeah. what was your path? <laughs> yeah. You know, I was Joey for a long time and then got to college and everyone started calling me Joe, I guess, because they felt like it was more adult and I didn't really have any say in the matter. And then I started like work after college and the same deal, like all the bosses and all the like adult people continued to call me Joe. And then it got to the point where I was like in my early 30s, I was like, you know what? I want to go by Joey. It's fun and youthful and I get to say what I'm called. And that's my origin story. So my, my, <laughs> my path was really similar Except whenever people would call me Joe when I was working my first jobs in, you know, high school and going to college and stuff like that, it would just feel like nails on a chalkboard in my soul. And I'd be like, <laughs> it's Joey. <laughs> like, so, and then people would say, just like, don't respond. Yeah. People would say, like, oh, but Joey's what your grandma calls you. And I'm like, it's also what I call myself. <laughs> so, like, <Yeah. laughs> so I, I feel like I dug my heels in on Joey so much. I feel like I could picture. A, I could picture a world where at some point I go by Joseph. I think that that's probably uh, when I'm in my like 50s or 60s, like maybe I'll switch to a Joseph. I don't like Joe. I don't feel like I'm a Joe, you know? No, I agree. And I think like now picturing you as a Joseph, I do picture you in that cat suit with maybe like a little cat bow tie and a cane going by Joseph. Yeah, it's like Joseph is just it's like way classier. And I feel like I'm not quite classy yet. I feel like I'm not quite to like that level of commitment of that, you know, aesthetic, <laughs> but like I could I could picture a world where like a few years from now, I fully step into being Joseph. And I don't mean like like a suit that looks like a cat or makes a person look like a cat. I mean, Joey Clift has a suit with cat faces all over it. <laughs> yeah, it's not it's not like it's not an all leather. It's not a BDSM yeah. thing. It's not from yeah, the yeah. Uh, hit film Cats. Yeah, oh, I wish it was. The movie was great. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's a custom tailored dress suit, kind of on my comedian side of what I do. I hosted a show at a theater called the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater in Los Angeles for about a year, where the premise of it is that I like, it was a late night talk show where I interviewed celebrities about their cats. And this was around 2017, <laughs> 2018. And I thought a late night show host usually wears like a really nice tailored suit. So what is like the cat version of that? Oh, it should be a suit covered in cat faces with a little like yarn ball pin on it, <laughs> a tie that's got a cat face on it and stuff. 
So I reached out to a friend who like knew some tailors. So I got like custom tailored. I haven't hosted the show for probably about four years, but I still wear that suit. I don't know, two or three times a year at a party. Mm -hmm. just because it's like probably my nicest suit. Because <laughs> it's just like custom tailored and it fits well and it just like looks fun. Yeah. And are you still involved with the LA Underground Cat Network? Oh, yes. This is a Facebook group I created for Los Angeles comedians to share pictures of their cats. It has over 15,000 members. It's way too popular. <laughs> and it started three offshoot Facebook groups because the cat community in LA, there's a lot of drama. So I had to be like, okay, y'all are in this group. Y'all are in this group. That is hilarious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's truly the bane of my life. Oh my <laughs> but, goodness. That's no, so I'm just funny. kidding. It's delightful. It's fun. But yeah, still, still running that. It still consumes just slightly more of my time than I'd like. But eh, no, it's fun. <laughs> So this is an interesting way to start this episode that I hadn't considered, but now you've got me thinking, maybe I will just search for Joey's out there. I'll invite them on the podcast and we'll just talk about our Joey origin stories and why we go by Joey. We'll do it over coffee and we'll call a cup of Joe. Oh, uh, cup of Joey. <laughs> there you go. There we go. Yay, we did it. <laughs> Joey, so we covered your name and, <laughs> and your fondness for cats. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? I feel like we touched on the comedian side because this has been pretty funny start so far, but maybe a little bit more about yourself and, and what you've worked and are working on. Yeah, so I am an animation writer. Primarily is kind of my day job. I'm currently a writer slash consulting producer on a show called Spirit Rangers on Netflix. It's a super cool show. It's the first ever TV show in the history of U.S. animation created by a Native person, the genius Shumash TV writer Chris Valencia with an all Native American writers room starring Native characters played by Native actors. I'm myself an enrolled member of the Cowlitz Indian tribe based out of southern Washington state and I grew up in the Tulalip Reservation. You know, it's a fun and also like historic show that I'm so happy to be working on and like really excited for, you know, the world to see when it comes out later this year. And other than that, I've written on shows like New Looney Tunes on Cartoon Network, Molly of Denali on PBS. Yeah, like a ton of other stuff. I've been working in animation since probably about 2014, and it's been a fun ride. That's awesome. First ever show created by and written by Native people. Oh, it's the first animated first show. Animated first animated show. Yeah, yeah. Got it. The first two shows came out last year, just straight up, just shows created by Native people. It was Rutherford Falls on Peacock and Reservation Dogs on FX. Those are live action, half hour sitcoms, and they're great. And it's like, it is cool to be in what is kind of like a historic time in like Native representation in media, because, you know, we've been you know, not included in like the main media narrative for hundreds of years due to like, I guess I would say forced genocide by the U.S. government. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you know, that old chestnut. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it, it is cool that finally we're getting like our spot in the media to actually be able to tell our stories and to be like a, you know, a, a small figure in that being able to work with other Native folks on Native shows. It's just like a really beautiful time. And I'm, you know, so happy to be a part of it, you know. Yeah, that's really amazing. And we've talked on this podcast before about whitewashing and pop culture and the history of that. And I never considered that point of view from the writer's room with something like an animated show having white writers writing not white characters is something that never crossed my mind. Yeah, I think it's like an important thing to have people who are a part of a community telling stories about that community. It allows you to get into like more of the specifics and nuance that you would be able to get into that you would not be able to get into if you like weren't a part of that community. 
Something that I've heard of a lot of the Rutherford Falls writers talk about, which like I, I echo a lot, is oftentimes when you're like the only native person in the writer's room writing, you know, a native character on a show, there's a lot of explanation of what a lot of people call like native 101 or Indian 101. You know, like you say something about fry bread or smudging or something, and then somebody is just like, wait, fry bread, what's that? And then you have to like spend 20 minutes explaining the history of fry bread or something like that to earn <laughs> a three second joke pitch that you're about to say. Whereas it's like an all native writers room. We're all from different tribes and stuff. We have just like a shared cultural knowledge. So we can just kind of like get to the joke and get to the story a lot more efficiently without having to stop and explain like who Deb Holland is or something. I think that the opposite when you have people that aren't a part of a community who are like telling stories about that community, things get kind of like broad and stereotypical and oftentimes racist, for lack of a better term. It's sort of like I was an in-house staff writer at a comedy website called Nerdist for a little while writing web series and sketches and things like that. My nerd knowledge was really big on like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but it was really low on like Game of Thrones. So whenever I'd write a sketch about Game of Thrones, it would be like, hold the door? Like this character says Hodor a lot and there's dragons in it. And it's like, I'm completely missing the nuance. Any Game of Thrones fan watching that would just be like, oh, it's clear this person has never watched an episode of Game of Thrones before. I think you came pretty close, honestly, having watched all of it myself. Yeah, just like Red Wedding. Season eight was bad. Those are the, I did yeah. it. You know, there's just like nuance that a room full of yeah. Game of Thrones fans would be able to pitch a very funny Game of Thrones sketch that Game of Thrones fans would appreciate. A room full of not Game of Thrones fans would like do the super baseline bad version of that. And it's like, if you just replace Game of Thrones with indigenous identity, it's like oftentimes how native yeah. folks feel when watching shows about natives. They're clearly not written by natives, you know? Yeah, it goes to something we've also talked about here. The idea of representation without actual inclusion. From my mind, the idea of like white people writing native or not white characters, they have the, you know, representation in their media, but they don't actually have the inclusion uh, per se. The shared experiences or the lived experiences. Or... Really with native stuff, oftentimes the first person who will see a script about a native character starring natives, whatever, is like the native actor who's playing that character on set the day that they're shooting it, you know, assuming that they're actually casting a native actor to play that native part, which, you know, up until recently, kind of a rarity in Hollywood. You know, if you think of Johnny Depp in Lone Ranger, oh, you know, Taylor Lautner yeah. in Twilight, even as just recent examples. If you're like a native actor and you got cast in a TV show and you feel like it's your big break and you get on set and they give you the script and it's like the most racist stuff possible, it puts you in a tough position are you going to like speak up to the director about that five minutes before shooting? You know, sometimes yes, but like there have been definitely movies where like native actors have walked on set, clearly being the first native person to read something that ends up being super racist. So, you know, that's something that I always try to like tell execs, producers and folks that I talk to about native TV shows, native productions is if you want to tell native stories, it's important to have like at least two native people who are working in the production decision making positions. Not just a consultant that you brought in for four hours to read the script and tell you if it's racist or not, when ultimately you just want them to like rubber stamp it. You know, having like a native producer or like a native writer or a native director or something that can help kind of guide the process and help build and create the thing so that by the time that a native actor gets it on set, it's like not some racist thing where you're putting some poor actor in an unfortunate spot where they've got to like either do something really stereotypical and racist that like hurts them inside 
or get fired from an acting job, you know? Yeah, so the danger of, like, getting there and speaking up and then being like, oh, we can just find someone else if you don't want to. Yeah, like, look, Johnny Depp's not doing anything today. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We're also big fans of animation here at Krypton to Alderaan, and the social media circles that I run in are always keeping up with the ongoing negotiation for the Animation Guild. You're a member of the Animation Guild, correct? Yep, I'm a member of the Animation Guild. It's the union in Hollywood that represents most animation workers. So, you know, everything from animation writers to storyboard artists to directors to, you know, background designers and stuff like that. And uh, Mm -hmm. yeah, as you mentioned, we're currently in the middle of negotiations with studios. I'm uh, not on the negotiation committee, so I can't go into like a ton of detail about like specifically what we're negotiating for. Sure. But yeah, it's it's definitely been an interesting experience. I I would say I'm like a fairly new member of the guild and I've, you know, tried to in my spare time put a lot of like volunteer work behind helping the guild with like messaging and getting the word out about, you know, all the different things that we're fighting for. Right. And can you tell us a little bit about what the negotiations are about and what you're fighting for? Yeah. So um, in broad strokes, what we're fighting for is just like fair pay, treatment and benefits for all animation workers. So we're calling it a new deal for animation is what we're asking for. Really, the, the reason for that is that for years, like animation workers have been some of the lowest paid and least respected people in the entertainment industry. You know, just speaking on the animation writer side of things, we're paid less than half of what our live action counterparts are made for like literally the same job. A showrunner for an animation guild show, who is the person who created the show, is running the show, and is like doing all the major decisions, makes less than an entry level first day on the job staff writer on like a WGA live action show. You know, there's a lot of other like things like uh, storyboard artists are finding themselves doing, you know, increasing workloads. Uh, Some jobs are being eliminated and then their duties are just being transferred to storyboard artists. Color designers make significantly less than just even other crafts within the animation guild. And like the reason for that is that it's just like a a history of kind of like misogyny in the position where um, for years, color design work, which are the people that like color the shows and make the shows look as like vibrant and beautiful as they are was thought Mm -hmm. of as like quote unquote women's work like they were literally called ink and paint girls in the 60s and you know as we all know about Mm -hmm. like the gender pay gap it just was justified for like hollywood assholes in the 60s to like pay them less because they were not men and that pay disparity is something that's continued for decades and decades and decades until 2022 you know i would say that like broadly speaking what we're fighting for in animation with our current negotiations is just to like be treated fairly and get like what we deserve and what we've earned, you know? And so this isn't just about the animation writers. It's included the animation writers and the storyboard artists and pretty much everyone involved in animation has those discrepancies in, in the jobs that their live action counterparts do. Yeah. It's just, it's basically just an across the board. Like we're all kind of unified as a union understanding that we're like, We've been given a raw deal for decades and decades and decades, and we're just, you know, standing up and, you know, trying to do what we can to, like, fight to get what we deserve. You know, and a couple of things that have really, I would say, like, forced our point a little bit is animation is the only pandemic-proof form of production. So mm, during the pandemic, right. live-action shows had to shut down, and animated shows, like, 
saw basically no break and basically had to just keep on pumping out stuff during you know a global pandemic right you know we like literally kept hollywood from going bankrupt dear over the past two years and then also like we see seven of the top 10 streaming films of 2021 were animated different statistics that we're seeing are streaming services are definitely touting animated shows as being the number one viewed shows on a lot of platforms like i think Paramount Plus just released a like a statement to the trades that was like SpongeBob SquarePants is the most viewed show on Paramount Plus. <laughs> right. And uh, I think SpongeBob also made three billion dollars for Viacom in like merchandising alone. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's just sort of us like seeing that like the shows that we're working on are very successful. They're making some people a lot of money. And, you know, we just are acknowledging that and we're kind of like banded together as a union to you know say that like that isn't okay that these shows are making so many people so much money while like freelance animation writers are only making like three dollars above minimum wage for scripts that if it was live action they'd be paid tens of thousands of dollars for you know and that's that's not to say that all animation writers are working under those terms there are definitely a good number of shows like the simpsons rick and morty two examples that have fought for a Writers Guild of America coverage for their shows. So they're paid essentially, you know, what are like sort of WGA live action rates for their animated programs. But the majority of animated shows are covered by the animation guild. So like the majority of animation writers are going through that issue. Why do shows like Rick and Morty and The Simpsons get to be in the WGA? That's just a matter of like having the leverage to negotiate. So, you know, The Simpsons and Rick and Morty are two of the most popular shows in the history of the world ever <laughs> you know i think the simpsons in like the late 90s mid 90s i think it was like 1986 1988 somewhere around there they just noticed like oh we're the most popular show on tv by a huge margin the writers for this show should be like paid fairly and get residuals and all these other things so they like banded together as a show to fight for you know a better contract and better wages and to be under the wga and rick and morty had kind of like a similar deal where rick and morty is like one of the most popular shows on tv right now so they were able to like band together and fight for that and you know that's like really awesome and a really good show of like collective bargaining on their parts and like you know there are definitely like other shows that have been able to negotiate that but it's not necessarily even a I feel like people look at that and they think oh all adult animated shows are wga covered and get those rates but that's not the case. It's like Rick and Morty, The Simpsons, probably like a few dozen other shows have been able to negotiate that. But like Harley Quinn on HBO Max is like an adult animated show that's a half hour that is under Animation Guild rates. So there's not necessarily any rhyme or reason other than extremely popular shows using their leverage and extremely influential showrunners using their leverage to fight for WGA rates for their writers. But like Every show does not have the benefit to be able to do that. So kind of like the hand that we're dealt is being in the animation guild and working collectively to fight for better deals and better rates and stuff like that for all of us. Yeah. And that's something I'd never considered before either is that aside from, like you said, holding the holding Hollywood afloat during something like a pandemic. I would assume, correct me if I'm wrong, that more animated shows get a lot more merchandise than live action shows. Yeah, there's not like succession lunchboxes, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you're getting so much more, making the studio, I assume, so much more money just from the merchandise alone. And it's also like, you know, thinking about it in like kids terms, like kids rewatch shows a lot. So, you know, if you're a streaming service and you're looking for like what shows are being viewed the most on your platform, it's going to be shows like SpongeBob or Adventure Time, you know? You know, it's just us seeing like, 
our shows are successful and they're making somebody a lot of money. So like it would be nice if we were included in that, especially when we see literally people doing the exact same job, making significantly more money, you know. Something that is so cool about this moment in the Animation Guild is I'm hearing people who've been in the Guild for decades and decades, animation writers, artists, and etc., who are saying that this is the most fired up that they have ever seen the Animation Guild. It's just really cool to see how passionate everybody is to like fight hard to be treated fairly and to get like the pay and benefits that we've you know deserved and earned. Something that was like just amazing to see a little bit ago, we held the first in-person rally the Animation Guild had held in probably 40 years, over 40 years. It was in Burbank. We drew over a thousand animation workers who all just, you know, collectively screamed and demanded a better deal. So, you know, I think that it is just a cool time in the union where I feel like I feel like for a long time, animation workers, I know specifically animation writers have been kind of like embarrassed to talk about our treatment because, you know, the way that Hollywood and the world values things is like, if you are a cheaper writer than somebody else, you're viewed as like a less good writer when that's like 100% not the case because like writing is writing. So, you know, I feel like a lot of animation writers and a lot of animation workers have been like ashamed to talk about our low rates. But now I think that we're like banded together and speaking with one voice about poor treatment that we've gotten and how we, you know, deserve to be paid fairly for the work we're doing. Right. Joey, I bet that you're in this industry and fighting this fight because you love the industry and what you do. Yeah, that's the that's very safe <laughs> to say. It would be weird if I was like, no, my life is yeah. a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I I love animation. I think that like what one of the reasons that I'm so passionate about this fight for animation workers is that for a lot of us, we moved to Hollywood with like a dream to be able to tell stories. And we worked for like years and years and years to make our way into the entertainment industry. For me, it took like a full decade of working in Los Angeles to even get my first like staff writing job on an animated show. And like, I love what I do and I'm like so thankful that I get to do this for a career, but I feel like people, people use that love to exploit us to work for, you know, less than we're worth. So, you know, it's easy to say like, oh, it's a fun job. So like, if you like it, you should do it for free, you know, whereas, yeah, you know, that's just not a good way to look at things. I mean, for me, like I've been working in the entertainment industry for like a little bit over a decade at this point. And I'm like probably never going to own a house. You know, I've dedicated so much time to this that, you know, I'm I'm pushing back life milestones that a lot of my friends who do not work in the entertainment industry have been able to do. You know, it's like my friends back home have all like bought homes and gotten married and had kids. The time that I would spend doing that is spent hustling all in on this very hard to break in industry. And like, you know, I think that a lot of my compatriots in the animation industry are like in the exact same boat where it's like we've worked so hard, you know, oftentimes the detriment of our health. Like I know people who have like been so overworked that they've had to go to the hospital because they're grinding on deadlines that they've been given on shows that like are like unrealistic. And the only way to do that is just to like not sleep for three days or something. Right. And, you know, so these are people that are like extremely talented and extremely hardworking who are like working their like fingers to the bone to create this content that is making somebody billions and billions of dollars like ceos of studios are making tens of millions of dollars every year like they're seeing record profits i think streaming services saw like 18 billion dollars in profits last year that's 
directly on the backs of those of us who are sacrificing our prime years to like chase this dream that we've had because we love doing it. So, you know, we just want a fair shake. We just want like that work to be um, given the true value and honor and respect that we've, that we fought for and earned, you know? Yeah. And you have to live in LA, correct? It's a local union and you have to live in one of the most expensive places to live or maybe the most expensive place to live in this country. Yeah, yeah, like the the Animation Guild, it's a local union. They are branching out a little bit, and they they recently organized, I think, Titmouse New York, which is an animation studio based in New York, and there are a few other mm-hmm. things that we're trying to do to kind of spread our wings outside of L.A., but, like, for the most part, we're an L.A. local union, which means that to be in the union, you have to be a Los Angeles local. So, yeah, it right. does force us into a position where we have to live in one of the most expensive cities in the world, making... Making money that makes it very hard to live in this city while working in this industry. Like people think that people who work in Hollywood are like millionaires or whatever, but like <laughs> so many of my friends are like paycheck to paycheck, fighting really hard to work to enough hours to like get health insurance, barely able to afford to live in this city and work in this industry that like is their passion to work in. So like, you know, it sure would be nice if we were paid enough to like, <laughs> you know, not have to live paycheck to paycheck. But I feel like it's not just us that's going through that. That's kind of like the plight of the American worker, right? Is the top 1% of the top 1% is making all the money, whereas all of us that are like doing the work to earn that money are not seeing the fruits of our labor, you know? So I, I think that it's it's an animation industry thing that we're specifically fighting for, but I think that it's similar to what you're seeing in a lot of other industries. We're also seeing similar fights. Right. Joey, like I said, the online communities that we're a part of are very passionate about this fight. So in your words, how can we help scream and demand a better deal for for all of you animation workers? So something that has been legitimately like game changing for our negotiations is the vocal cries for support on social media that we've gotten from, you know, animation workers, but also like animation allies, fans of animation, people who like our stuff. You know, a couple of ways that you can support animation workers in our current fight is by, you know, just tweeting about our fight a ton. So uh, a couple of Twitter accounts that are good to follow are at Tag Writers, that's the Animation Writers Twitter account, at Color Design 839, that's Color Designers, and at Tag Story Group, those are like storyboard artists and that kind of thing. And there are specific hashtags that we've been using, hashtag pay animation writers, hashtag equal pay for equal paint, that's the number four, and then hashtag Storycraft Unite. And um, also hashtag New Deal for animation, the number four, is kind of the hashtag that we've been using to cover a lot of that stuff you know i'd say like follow those twitter accounts engage with them you know retweet their stuff if you like animation shows definitely don't be afraid to tweet about your support for not just the shows but like the people who are making the shows who are like fighting really hard Mm -hmm. for this deal because like all of those hashtags have been the number one hashtags in the state of california los angeles and i think storycraft unite was like the number two hashtag in the entire united states a couple weeks ago Having a thousand people show up to a parking lot in Burbank, like these are all things that make it very hard for the studios to ignore. So, you know, anything that you can do to like help spread the word about what we're doing, you know, like I said, like following these Twitter accounts, like sharing their tweets, tweeting about your support for animation workers is like hugely helpful in our struggle. Awesome. That's great to know. And I will put all of those accounts and social media campaigns and hashtags in the show notes. Hell yeah. I'm so glad you're here. And like I said, I love animation and I love talking about animation. And it's so amazing to hear how passionate you are in both, 
you know, the writing aspect and this fight that you're fighting. I'd love to talk about how you got into the world. Like, when did you know you wanted to work in media? Yeah, I think that my story is one that's like a little bit windy um, as to how I got here. I, um, like I said, I'm in rural Cowlitz and I grew up in the Tulip Reservation. Growing up, like I loved comedy. I loved animation. I loved shows, you know, like The Simpsons, Family Guy and stuff like that. But because I'm like native and there weren't any like prominent native comedians or native animation workers that I could see on TV, I didn't think I was like allowed to work in comedy. So instead, I went to school for what to me felt like the next best thing. And it was to be like a small market TV weather guy. (laughs) They get to like have fun personalities and crack jokes. So that like made sense as a way that I could get paid to make people laugh. Fortunately, when I was in college, a bunch of my professors kind of pulled me aside and were like, hey, you know, you could just work in comedy, right? And I was like, what? Uh, And this was uh, around 2009 when I graduated. So I moved to L.A. in 2010. And then through kind of alumni connections through my college, got a job assisting the guys that created the show Scare Tactics on Sci-Fi, which is a a prank show hosted by Tracy Morgan. And, you know, just dove into the Los Angeles comedy scene with both feet, places like the Upright Systems Brigade Theater, Second City and places like that. You know, really just worked really hard, you know, kind of getting my comedy chops and, you know, hustling to um, get as good as I could at comedy and to try to like make my way in the industry. And it was definitely a like long and windy road, but I'm glad that I've kind of, you know, found my way into this fun animation niche, you know? Yeah. So that's really interesting. Did you have a particular weather personality, weather person personality that you idolized as a kid? You're like, I want to be like that person. They crack a lot of jokes about the weather. Okay. So it's funny that you asked that. I'm going <laughs> to do a big shout out to uh, Steve Poole. He was like the local Como 4 News weather guy for like decades and decades in Washington state. I remember I actually got a scholarship from Fisher Broadcasting, which was the broadcasting company that owned uh, Como 4 News. And part of that was when I like interviewed to get the scholarship, I like drove to the Como 4 News building and they gave me a, t- a quick tour of the building after the interview. And when I did the tour, I walked past like Steve Poole's weather center where he was like on the balcony doing like a weather report, you know, out outside. <laughs> I had to like stop myself from freaking out. <laughs> I had to be like, be cool, Joey, be cool. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much how I live my life, telling myself that. <laughs> be cool, Joey. That's awesome. So how'd you make the transition into animation? Was that in the back of your mind when you were getting into comedy, when your professors pulled you aside and said, you know, you can just do comedy, right? Were you like, did you have that sort of path already in your mind? So I think that for me, I knew so little about how the entertainment industry works. Like, I don't have like an uncle who's a producer who would explain like the different jobs there are in Hollywood. So when I moved to Los Angeles, it was just kind of an amorphous, I want to work in comedy, which, you know, what does that mean? Is that acting? Is that writing? Is that (laughs) editing? Is that directing? Is that writing sketches? Is that whatever? You know, I just kind of like followed the path that was before me. So I moved to LA. I think I was talking to my bosses about how people kind of like get in in comedy and they suggested the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. So I saw some shows there, really liked what was happening on stage. It was just a lot of like funny, weird alt comedy stuff, which was like very much my jam. Started taking classes there, got on what's called a house team, which is kind of like what the theater puts together as like the best writers and performers in the community. As I was doing that, I kind of learned like specifically writing like weird sketch comedy does a great job of preparing you to write for animation. And then a guy that I was on a sketch group with, while I was on a sketch group with him, he sold a Looney Tunes relaunch to Cartoon Network. 
And this was, you know, like a one in a million, just weird coincidence. And he really liked working with me on the sketch group. So when he sold the show and was putting it together, he talked to me and was like, hey, do you want to like maybe pitch some freelance episodes for this like Looney Tunes relaunch? (laughs) And I was like, I was excited at the potential to write for characters that I'd seen growing up and loved growing up. And then when I kind of started doing it and coming up with episode ideas and writing my first episodes, I feel like something clicked me a little bit. And then I was like, oh, this this feels like the thing. And then I kind of like thought back to like, I idolized shows like The Simpsons, Family Guy, King of the Hill, and et cetera, growing up. I think that that was sort of like preparing me for this specific thing. And it prepared my like comedic sensibilities for that specific thing. You know, animated shows are like the things that I loved growing up and the things that I like watched the most. And, you know, it really, it's sort of like when you, when you do something and it just kind of feels right. And it just feels like, this is like what all of my skills have been building toward and what I've like secretly loved all along, but just didn't like know the words to say it. You know, I I think that that's something that just my comedic sensibilities kind of like lend toward animation more than live action. Like I released an animated short in 2018 with a very long name. It's called telling people you're Native American when you're not native is a lot like telling a bear you're a bear when you're not a bear. 24 (laughs) words long, basically a Fiona Apple album title. That was my first time like writing and directing an animated thing. And it like did really well in film festivals. It screened everywhere from like just for laughs to like the Smithsonian Museum. (laughs) Because if a native does comedy, you got to just like take it and put it in a museum, I guess. (laughs) You know, so I I feel like something that I've heard from um, a lot of comedians is the term you're kind of like chasing your cheese. So it's like we're all mice who are just like chasing those breadcrumbs or chasing that cheese. So it's like if you do something and you get a compliment, that's like somebody giving you a little piece of cheese to follow in that direction. I feel like I love working in animation and I also feel like anytime I do anything in animation, somebody's just like, I hope you like Brie and then crams a bunch of cheese in my mouth. So, you know, you're kind of just following your joy and it's, it's just yeah. a medium I like a lot and I have a lot of fun doing. Awesome. So you, you made it to LA with the idea of being a comedian and then just realized that your strengths translated into writing for animation. Yeah. And that's, and that's not to say that I'm not like still a comedian. Like I still do, you know, comedy stuff all the time but it's like i think i I, like the way that i like to think about it is i'm like a writer with like a i'm a writer performer but with like a heavy emphasis on writer you know i think that i think that writing is my writing is my homeostasis i like the part of the job where i sit in an air-conditioned room and eat snacks and crack jokes with people i like all day you know yeah i'm just making a note here that i think i'm gonna title this episode chasing your cheese with joey clay hell yeah (laughs) did you so transitioning into animation writing and the animation medium as you did i'm curious because i think this is a sentiment that's that people think animation is a stepping stone to live action did you find that when you were beginning writing animation uh did people expect you to then like transition into live action i don't necessarily feel that push creatively i mean i'm ultimately somebody that like you know i like to write in a lot of different mediums so i I'm an animation writer primarily, but I also like have written a ton in the live action space. I um, have a live action short that I wrote and directed that's currently going through film festivals that's like doing really well, winning a bunch of awards and stuff. I think that for me, I just like telling stories. Yeah. Animation, I think, is the animation is like definitely like a very fun way for me to do that right now. But that's not to say that's like the only medium that I ever want to tell stories in. Sure. I do think that the opposite is true for a lot of animation writers. And this kind of loops back to like why the fight for a better deal for animation workers is so important is 
you know, if, if you're in the animation guild and you're writing in a show and like barely able to pay your rent. And meanwhile, mm-hmm. you're seeing live action WGA writers or just WGA writers, period, who are making good money, telling stories and doing what is literally the same job that you're doing. I think that for a lot of animation workers, there is kind of the pull of like, I would like to be able to own a house someday. I think that it is something where because we're paid so little compared to our live action counterparts, there is a feeling for, I think, a lot of animation workers of like wanting to write on a WGA show so that you can make WGA rates, which is like a bummer because like there are so many like extremely talented animation writers who are so good at the medium of like telling complex stories and like, you know, specifically in kids animation. It would be incorrect of you to say that it does not take skill to explain how electricity works to three-year-olds in a cartoon while also pushing a story (laughs) forward and including jokes in it, you know? Yeah. What we're doing is like very complex and like a very specific skill set that like not everybody can do. So it's a shame that somebody who's really good at that feels that they need to write an hour-long drama or something like that, that they're not as passionate about because they would like to be able to have a 401k and retire someday, you know? Right. You know, and and this, this kind of goes to what I was telling you about earlier, which was that like, because WGA writers are paid so much more than animation guild writers, WGA writers are seen, I think by a lot of people as like better writers just because they cost more. Cause that's just the world we Mm -hmm. live in. And I think that for a lot of animation writers, there is a feeling of like, I'm a good writer. I want people to like value me and my work. So like, there's a lot of that kind of feeling, I think, for a lot of animation folks is the want to work in live action spaces and work on WGA shows because, like, we want to be able to own houses someday and start <laughs> right. families and afford to not live paycheck to paycheck, you know? Literally to make a living and also to, like, gain the respect of, hey, I'm a good writer. Yeah. And it's a shame because, like, so many animation, so many, like, exclusively animation writers in the Animation Guild are some of the most talented people you'll ever meet. Right. I know a lot of people there in the WGA and the Animation Guild, and it's like, the scripts that you write from one or the other are the exact same. The only difference is the pay. So, right. you know, and like I said, like, so many of these animated shows are so much more popular than so many of these live action shows and movies literally seven of the top 10 streamed films in 2021 were animated films and not live action films whereas all of the people that wrote those animated films made like 10 percent of the rate of the people who wrote those live action films you know so i think that there's like that feeling for a lot of animation workers and you know it, it does kind of create or like it will create like kind of a brain drain of these talented animation workers who love this craft feeling like they have to move into writing for WGA or live action work just so they can like more effectively pay their bills, you know? Right. And that sucks. Yeah. Big time. You mentioned the Simpsons, King of the Hill, Family Guy a couple of times. This is maybe a little bit of a tangent. I'm curious as to what cartoons you watched as a kid. So this is going to date me, but I was a really big like Saturday morning cartoon person. Great. So yeah, yeah, you know, it's like Batman the Animated Series, X-Men, yes. you know, name <laughs> anything on the Nicktoons lineup, like Hey Arnold, Red right. Rats, all those shows. Yeah, I, I would say that, yeah, just like I loved pretty much any and all animation as a, as a kid. You know, yeah. anything on Saturday morning cartoons up to, you know, adult stuff like The Simpsons or The Critic or whatever, you know. The Critic, the Critic was oh my amazing. goodness. <laughs> might, be, uh, might be a good one to go back to. Maybe this is another tangent off the tangent. Usually on Krypton to Alderaan, I ask a surprise question. Maybe this will be one of our surprise questions. Joey, 
I, I can't believe we made it this far without me asking, but Joey, do you like Star Wars? Okay, so I do I do like Star Wars. I would consider <laughs> myself I I say I'm a filthy casual, but for being a filthy casual, the amount of like very specific Star Wars lore I know off the top of my head <laughs> is weird. Like I, I'm definitely the first person in the room that if somebody is like, wait, is there only one Chewbacca? And I'm just like, they're called Wookiees and they're from the planet Kashyyyk. Like, you know, you know, I, I feel like like a lot of folks, really big fan of the original trilogy. You know, the prequels uh, like were fine. Uh, there was some good stuff in the sequel trilogy. Um like I really loved. Maybe this is gonna get me uh, beat up by your fans, but I really loved the Last Jedi. Awesome. The Last Jedi was great, and you know I think that there's a lot of really cool stuff happening in kind of the expanded Disney universe. Like The Mandalorian is just like great mm-hmm. Star Wars. You know what I really appreciate is like it's clear everybody working the Mandalorian really gets what the appeal of Star Wars is, and that it's like it's just like space westerns. You know? Yeah. So yeah, I, I like Star Wars and I'm also, I'm just like a lore nerd. So whenever there's like deep lore in something, I will be one of the first people to like go on a Wikipedia deep dive of the time that Indiana Jones found Han Solo's skeleton in like the Millennial <laughs> Falcon, you know? Yeah, no, I love that. And I'm also a huge lore nerd i've been recently like trying to get away from the canon of it all and absorb everything else but we're talking about all this animation stuff and i asked you because i I love animated star wars i think animated star wars is some of the best star wars the clone wars star wars rebels uh, to some extent the bad batch and i think it's important like you said growing up when we grew up in the 90s we had the greats like every superhero cartoon I think was incredible. Batman, Superman, Justice League, Spider-Man, X-Men. They were all freakazoid. Yeah, freakazoid was great. (laughs) But I think it's really important because we've loved that stuff for our entire lives. It's really interesting talking to you about your passion about this, but it's why like me and our listeners, we love this stuff. And it's important for us to help fight for the creators behind this stuff. Conscious consumerism is such a big thing. And the way, in my mind, to consciously consume this media is to obviously make sure that, hey, everybody working on it is getting paid what they should get paid in order to survive in the world. Something that blows my mind about this stuff is like, yeah, you mentioned Star Wars animated series and I talked about The Mandalorian. Oftentimes, writers working on the same property using the same characters will be paid less or more based on whether it's live action or animated. So, Mm. you know, I don't necessarily know what the coverage of Star Wars, The Clone Wars was under, whether that was a WGA show or a tag show. But my guess is that Mandalorian writers are under the WGA and are paid WGA rates to write on The Mandalorian because it's live action and covered by the WGA, whereas Clone Wars writers and Star Wars Rebels writers probably were paid tag rates to a star wars fan you're just like both of these are great star wars but like yeah the writers were paid significantly different rates just because of the medium it's in you know and that's like dumb (laughs) like yeah it's really really dumb and like i said i hope that's what we're taking away from this conversation the people listening like we love all this stuff, and I think the conscious way to love all this stuff is to make these fights. So again, I will be putting the accounts and the hashtags and stuff in the show notes. Everyone deserves to get paid what they need to get paid in order to live. Yeah, that's not a controversial statement. <laughs> you should be paid enough to be able to afford to live. <laughs> Full stop. Yeah, yeah. 
Did you watch any of the animated Star Wars shows? Are they in your are they in your world? They're on my like wish list of shows that I need to watch. Like I've heard amazing things about, you know, Star Wars Rebels, Clone Wars, I hear is great. What was the most recent Star Wars animated series? Was it Resistance or something? Oh, there was Resistance and then there was the Bad Batch and then there was Star Wars Visions, which was the anime style miniseries kind of thing that was uh, from Japanese creators which was very, very good. Yeah, like that as a definitely an anime nerd growing up. Seeing anime in my Star Wars just feels like a real chocolate and peanut butter situation where it's just like, <laughs> I can't picture that not ruling, you know? Yeah, no, it was awesome. Definitely worth a watch. And there's even stuff like, like Star Wars Resistance. It's like, I remember watching the trailers for that and just being like, this just feels like it's like Macross, but Star Wars. And that's amazing. <laughs> yep. No, it was really good. And, uh, you know, with... This is another, I think, important point. I see so many times like talking on social media about animated Star Wars where people will come and be like, I haven't watched it because it's animated and animation is for kids. And to some extent, obviously, it's very appealing to kids. But that seems to be like another, again, another like systemic notion. Some people think that it's so much easier to write animation because they think it's for kids. And the way I've heard it described is that an adult writing for adult TV and adult, quote unquote, adult animation, you know the language. But when you're writing for kids, you have to write in a different language. But yeah, like something that uh, one of my friends in the Animation Guild has said is we might be writing for kids shows, but we've got adult bills to pay. <laughs> like, you <laughs> right, know, right. <laughs> and I think that there, there are a few things to that. One, animation is a medium, not a genre. So, right. you know, you could have a show like Coco Melon that's animated for, you know, a very young audience. And you could have a show like Harley Quinn or Invincible on Amazon, which is amazing, mm. which is like the goriest and most adult shit you could like see in your life. And yep. both of those can be animated. And then I think that specifically the note of like a show being for kids means that it takes less skill to write. I mean, like I said earlier, it's like if you take a live action writer who's never written for kids and tell them, OK, you've got to explain to a six year old all of the intricacies of like how World War Two started. And it's got to be in a song and have jokes in it and also push the story forward in 11 minutes. They'd probably have trouble doing that. Like it is, a, <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, try yeah. explaining how electricity works and how atoms work to a three year old like right. while also trying to push a story forward in a way that's interesting and has jokes in it. Like it's right. very complex, hard writing. And something that I hear from a lot of like writers for more adult shows that get jobs on kids shows is they'll say that like writing for kids TV is so much harder because there's so much like there's so much more stuff that you have to do than just telling an, a story. You know, there's like a lot of nuance to it that doesn't necessarily exist in adult television. And, you know, like like I said, whether it's kids stuff or not, SpongeBob made somebody three billion dollars in merchandising. <laughs> so it's like, right, like either way, people deserve to get paid. Yeah, I, I think that that's something that I've heard a lot on Twitter is like, just because you don't watch a show, that doesn't mean that the people who created it don't deserve to be compensated for it, you know, 100 percent. I think it would be good to get some insight if you could share into your process for writing, like the differences in writing 
kids animation versus kids live action. Basically, if there is a difference in process for what you do based on what you're writing. So ultimately, what I like to write, regardless of what the age group is, whether it's kids or adults, is what do I want to see? What What's something that I haven't seen on TV or in the media before that I think would be like cool to see on TV? Or it's just like, what's something that like I would have liked to have seen if I was a kid? Right. And I think that like my process for writing does not change based on what medium it is. Hmm. If I'm writing a live action kid show versus an animated kid show or a live action adult show versus an adult animated show or whatever, you know, it's all storytelling. Like it's all trying to tell the stories in the most effective way that you can. I would say that as somebody who came up primarily through kind of the alt comedy space, a lot of live comedy, I tend to not pull back on, you know, jokes and things like that and like stories until I'm like a little bit further down the process. And then I might tweak a joke slightly so it's a little bit more kid appropriate or a little bit like aged up or something like that. I feel like the difference in age groups is really just the problems that the characters are going through. So it's like if you're writing something, if you're writing a show starring 20 year olds, you might do an episode about how they're like trying to figure out how to rent a car. Whereas if you're doing a show for 11 year olds, you might do a story about like going to your first dance in middle school or something like that, you know? So it's more like looking at life touchstone things that kind of depends on like the age of the characters or what kind of like age you want to put across for them or whatever they're going through. Right. And that's something that's like, regardless of medium, it's just storytelling, you know? Yeah. Unless you're writing Turning Red. I haven't seen her Turning Red. I really want to see it. I hear it's good. There's just been a lot of pushback because part of the movie is about her first period and like all the dude bros from everywhere who watched the movie came on and be like, this is gross. Why are you putting this in a kid's movie? This is a cartoon, all that kind of stuff. They just jumped on hating it because at one point in the movie, periods are mentioned. I mean, how dare the, yeah. how dare the writer <laughs> write to their life experiences <laughs> yeah. in a thing that literally half of the people on the planet can relate to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's a, uh, I'm just going to say that that sort of criticism, if you make that sort of criticism, you're dumb. Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> Another like, full stop on the podcast. Yeah. It's just like, I mean, I don't know. I think that that's sort of the um, just, yeah, it's, it's what we were talking about earlier about like, just because you don't like a show doesn't mean that people don't deserve to be paid for it. Just because you immediately don't relate to something personally does not mean that that is a personal attack on you. <laughs> yeah. And it doesn't mean you have to like, attack you don't have to go on the attack or like alternatively just like appreciate the story whether it's for you or not for you doesn't mean that you can't like watch it as a movie <laughs> like yeah and appreciate and respect that it's respect the amount of work that went into it, it was someone's story and that so many people worked on it and that it got made is art yeah i don't know it's like i really love the john wick franchise I have never killed 70 people with a book before. <laughs> and I still, I can still like be like, oh, I got it. That's a guy who's upset about something. I understand that emotion. Like yeah. we literally talked about Star Wars. This podcast is about Star Wars. Okay. If you're like, if you're, if you're mad about turning red because you personally cannot relate to having a period, how can you relate to a show about space wizards with laser swords? Like, like. <laughs> I don't know. Just like, sh shut up. Like, Yeah, yeah. Shut up and go away. So, Joey, what gets you jazzed about writing animation? Your process, how your process has evolved, the people you work with, the product. What is it about the creation process that's exciting for you? So parts of the process that like I'm always chasing are just like 
collaborating with cool people to make stuff we're proud of. So with the, the current show that I'm writing on, I love, you know, every day coming into a Zoom call with like people who I think are some of the coolest and funniest writers around. Yeah. And right. just like riffing and goofing for, you know, an hour, or a couple of hours or whatever. And then at the end of it, we yeah. come out with like a story that we're proud of and jokes that we think are funny, you know. So, yeah, like that collaborative process is like, I think always what I'm chasing, because like it's like when you're in high school or you're a teenager or whatever, and then you're like hanging out in your friend's basement, just like trying to make each other laugh with dumb jokes or whatever. <laughs> right. And just applying that to a script. Yeah, it's sort of it's like that vibe. But for a script, which is really cool. I'm also just excited about telling stories that are like resonant to you know me and the people around me and that i think people will respond to i mean like i feel blessed to be able to tell cool interesting stories with people that i like and yeah and it's also just it's so it's so fun to me something that i love about animation is that you know because it's so like art driven i'm a writer i'm not like a visual artist like my mom is like a painter she paints like murals and stuff for a living i definitely did not get those genes but i got you know storytelling writing genes you know, it's, it's always so exciting when I like email an artist, like kind of what I'm looking for, for an art design for a character. And then I get back this like amazing art piece of like what I want this character to look like. And then I'll maybe give a couple notes about like maybe their hat should be like a different color or something <laughs> like that part of the process of working with other artists in different mediums and crafts to like work together to create a thing that you're all proud of is like inject that right into my, vein, my veins. It's great. <laughs> so like I would say that that's something that I'm excited about. Also, like Something that I really love, like if I'm working on a show or I'm like hired on a job, ultimately like what I'm specifically making is, you know, I'm kind of like chasing the, the deadlines and the mandates of the show and all that stuff. But when I'm working on personal work, something that I really love doing is um, what's called morning pages, which is like you wake up in the morning, you set an alarm in your phone for like five to 10 minutes and you just pick up like a notepad and you just kind of like write until the timer goes out. Sometimes you can write like ideas for things and sometimes if you have nothing to say you can just be like i don't want to do this i wish you could go back to bed it's like just the important thing is to just keep writing it's so fun to me when i do that and i'll like come up with something that like surprises myself like telling people your native american short that i mentioned like i wrote that in kind of like a morning page thing where i was like trying to think of like fun ideas for animated shorts that i could like self-produce and i just came up with like that title and then like probably wrote the entire script of that of the two minute short in like five minutes while like <laughs> laughing to myself while laying in bed and then what we ended up animating was like 95 percent of that script it's just like there were like a couple small joke punch-ups i had some friends do but you know i think that that's it's like ultimately we're all trying to like in my case as a comedy writer like make each other laugh or make each other think or make ourselves right. laugh or think and you know i think that like that's just something that is as close to like euphoria yep. as you can get uh legally <laughs> <laughs> yeah and that short is incredible and so much fun and everyone go to joeycliff.com and watch that short i also really loved the uh so your team is changing its native american mascot short was that for comedy central yeah 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 i i made that for comedy central it came out last october on the day of the last cleveland indians game that mm. they played under that name so maybe it was a little pointed and that was that was another short that like i wrote directed and starred in it and it was just such a fun experience i also um hired a bunch of really great native actors to be in it janice meeting who's the co-star of rutherford falls and peacock 
Tyler Clare, who's a Rutherford Falls writer, and um, John Timothy, who's a super funny native guy in the UCB community. And we brought in Marie Bowers, who's a really great indigenous um, designer to do some of the character designs and stuff. You know, for me, like I mentioned earlier that I, growing up, loved comedy, but because I didn't see any native comedians on TV, I didn't think I was allowed to work in comedy. Mm -hmm. So like, I would say that that short is probably one of the things I'm most proud of in my career because like I went from, you know, 10, 12 years ago, literally not even thinking I was allowed to work in comedy, trying to get a job as a small market TV weather guy because like that made sense to like, (laughs) I think I'm the first native person who's like made a piece of content produced by like a major comedy platform like Comedy Central. That's amazing. So like to go from that to like, having my name and face in a Comedy Central short with a bunch of my friends in it is like, it's tough to, it's tough for me to comprehend coming from where I've come from that I was able to do that. And it's just cool, you know? It's cool and it's incredible and it's funny and it's great to watch. Yeah. Also, yeah. it's funny. Also, it's funny. <laughs> and it's, it's got jokes in it. I like, you know? Yeah. As you've like workshopped your process, you're discussing, you mentioned being particularly proud of that short. What work are you like that particularly proud of as you've as you've workshopped things and found your footing in the animation? So, uh, yeah, I mentioned I'm proud of uh, that Comedy Central short, the bear short. I'm uh, really proud of, too. Like that bear short. I mean, I don't know. I was interviewed on like NPR about it two weeks wow, ago. That's awesome. So it's like, yeah, I was on uh, All Things Considered. We'll put the link to that in as well. Yeah, I would say that like uh, that's those are things that I'm really proud of. Really proud of the show Spirit Rangers that I'm currently working on, which comes out later this year, which everybody should watch when it comes out. It's great. You know, I, I think that I've got a couple of other things that I'm kind of I'm currently in the process of developing that I'm like excited about and proud of. I think, you know, I, I feel like I'm in a fortunate spot right now where like I really like what I'm kind of saying and doing with my work and i'm really happy with the people that i'm working with awesome so you know i'm, I'm really proud of the things that i am working on and am coming out mm-hmm. with in the near future like i mentioned i worked for like a decade to even get my foot in the door and like it really feels like that hard work is creatively paying off in ways that i could have never imagined <laughs> right that's great we talked about Growing up when we did with cartoons and stuff in the 90s, and you've gotten to write for Looney Tunes. Is there anything you have in, in your mind that you would like to go back and write for? Like, do you have an animated X-Men script that you'd like, that would be an awesome episode? I think that for me, my white whale is <laughs> I would love to write a freelance Simpsons episode. Nice. Because that's just so much of my like comedic DNA comes from watching right. that show. You know, I would say that that's probably the big one. Awesome. Joey, like I said before, at the end of this podcast, I usually ask a surprise question. So, oh, no. And my surprise question for you is, it's actually cheat. It's maybe like five questions in one. But what, ah. <laughs> what are your... T- that's the, su- that's the <laughs> that's surprise. The surprise. the surprise is instead of being one question, it's five questions. <laughs> Each one more mischievous than the last. <laughs> it's a very layered surprise. What are your top five favorite animated series? Or if you can't, I understand if you can't say because you like piss someone off somewhere in your in your peer group. But so in no particular order, and there's going to be a ton of like probably recency bias in this. The Simpsons (laughs) is very high on that list. I would say Batman, the animated series was, I think, a very formative series for me growing up. You know, Futurama, of course. Futurama is great. Really just like a lot of Matt Groening stuff I'm a big fan of. 
I'm going to say, once again, recency bias speaking, but Amazon's Invincible is incredible. You should definitely watch that if you're a fan of, you know, cool, complex animation. And I'm going to say fifth one in no particular order, probably like Neon Genesis Evangelion is pretty dope. Nice. Like Evangelion <laughs> fan. Awesome. All right, Jay. Well, thank you so much again for being here and talking to us about all of this stuff. Before we officially transition out here, can you again tell us what we can do to help and support the Animation Guild and everything going on? Yes, to support us in our you know current negotiations battle. I would say get as educated as you can about our fight. There are a lot of really great articles from a lot of great publications about specifically the things that we're fighting for. If you Google like hashtag new deal for animation, the number four, you'll probably see a lot of great articles coming up. Honestly, just supporting us and talking about us on social media, like I mentioned, following the at tag writers account at color design 839 at tag story group and using the hashtags pay animation writers equal pay for equal paint storycraft unite and new deal for animation. Your support and seeing things like, you know, storycraft unite being the number two trending hashtag in the United States a few weeks ago, it really lets us know that people care about our fight and that like motivates us to fight so much harder and it also like lets the studios know that people care about this like i said a lot of people who've been in the guild for decades and decades and decades have said that this is the most motivated and fired up they've ever seen the animation guild and i think that that's directly due to all of the people on social media who have like shared our message and, you know, every time that we see people tweeting about us, it makes us fight a little bit harder. So, you know, like follow those accounts, retweet their stuff, you know, tweet about how you support animation workers. The, that goes a really long way to show a lot of people that there's a lot of support for us to, like, get the deal that we deserve and have earned. Amazing. And where can people find you? And is there anything you can tell us besides your Netflix animated show that you've got going on? Yeah, so uh, you can follow me on Twitter at JoeyTainment. You can follow me on Instagram at Joey Clift with like five or six eyes. The reason it's got five or six eyes is like a 12-year-old took Joey Clift with one eye. So I just <laughs> had to make do. Although I'm really frustrated. I recently like checked his account and he hasn't posted an Instagram photo since like 2012. Mm. So I'm like, I really want to like find that kid and be like, I will give you $100 to give me regular Joey Clift. I'm going to tell everyone in your life to call you Joe if you don't give me that. Yeah, I'll do it. I mean, he's look. <laughs> He's probably, he was 12 years old a while ago, so he's probably like 20 now. <laughs> so yeah, definitely follow me on social media. Like I said, check out my my shorts, How to Cope with Your Team Changing its Native American Mascot on all of Comedy Central's social channels. And uh, telling people you're Native American when you're not Native is a lot like telling a bear you're a bear when you're not a bear, which you can find <laughs> on my website and on Vimeo. It's a very catchy name. It just rolls off the tongue. <laughs> In the near future, uh, like I mentioned, Spirit Rangers on Netflix is coming out later this year. And um, I've got a, the live action short that I mentioned called My First Native American Boyfriend, which is currently going through the festival circuit right now. It's screening at Phoenix Film Festival in Phoenix, Arizona, and Tonkawa Film Festival in Tonkawa, Oklahoma in the next couple of weeks. That should be live on the internet once its festival run ends, you know, probably later this year, like October, November, somewhere around there. That sounds great. I'll put as many links as I can in the show notes to all your stuff and your website and everything. And again, Thank you so, so much for being here, Joey. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks for having me, other Joey. Yeah. Wait, are you the other Joey or am I the other Joey? <laughs> um, I'll be the other Joey. That's fine. Okay. But Joey it's your Pierce. show. I feel like I should be the other Joey. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having yeah. me. This is super fun. Thanks so much. Bye. 
Well, everyone, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Joey Clift. Let me know what you thought and let us know what your top five favorite animated shows are. Be sure to check out all of Joey's stuff at joeyclift.com and follow him on socials. All of his accounts are linked in the show notes. And please, please, please support the animation worker cause by following the accounts and using the hashtags that Joey and I discussed, all of which are also linked in the show notes. You can also get in touch with us. Just search Krypton to Alderaan on all socials or pew pew us an email at Krypton to Alderaan at gmail.com. I've been Joey and I'll catch you on the next episode.